What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Darius Dale is the founder and CEO of 42 Macro, the leading macro risk management advisor. In this conversation, we talk about what's going on in the macro economy, what's happening in the financial markets, how Darius is looking at various metrics, and also what you at home should be thinking about as you invest your capital. I really enjoyed this conversation with Darius, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Exodus, the world's leading desktop, mobile, and hardware crypto wallet. They offer beautiful, user-friendly blockchain products that sync across all of your devices, making it easier to send, receive, and exchange over 150 or more crypto assets in one place. And with world-class customer service available to you 24-7, Exodus always has your back. But the fun doesn't stop with staking and trading. They recently launched a new NFT marketplace where you can buy and sell your favorite NFTs on the Solana network. By partnering with the popular NFT platform Magic Eden, they're offering the full Monty on verified collections, with more added every single day. Ready to check it out for yourself? Run, don't walk, over to exodus.com slash pomp for your free download today. Again, if you want the world's leading desktop, mobile, and hardware crypto wallet, go to exodus.com slash pomp today. Today's episode is sponsored by Abra. They're based in California, and they're backed by top VC firms. Abra is an all-in-one, simple, secure app that allows you to trade over 110 cryptocurrencies, get 0% interest loans using your crypto as collateral, and earn interest with up to 13% APY on stablecoins and 7.15% APY on Bitcoin. You can join nearly 2 million users by downloading Abra from the Google Play or Apple App Store. If you download the app today, you will get $15 in free crypto once you fund your account. You came, you invested, now conquer. Abra, conquer crypto. Go check it out today. This episode is brought to you by DeFi Technologies. DeFi Technologies represents what's next in the digital economy. They're providing simplified, trusted access to crypto, decentralized finance, and Web3 investment opportunities. Institutions and investors can gain diversified, secure, compliant, and easily tradable access to a diversified set of industry-leading equity products and protocols through a single stock purchase on a regulated exchange. DeFi Technologies is currently listed on the U.S. exchange at DEFTF stock ticker and the Canadian NEO exchange at DEFI. For more information or to subscribe to receive company updates and financial information, visit their website at DeFi.tech. I'm really excited about what these guys are doing. I've become an advisor to the business, and I highly suggest you go check them out. Go to their website at defi.tech today. All right, let's get in this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, as you guys can hear, we have another guest in the studio now. <laughs> he literally couldn't keep quiet. I mean, and I, like, sometimes I got to just say the truth. He's 98 years old. <laughs> no, you're neurologically Darius proven. Darius is here. Yeah, I am here. What's up, boys? In the studio, live and in charge, man. Uh, it's, it's good to be here. What, what do you think about Charlie Munger's bullshit yesterday? I, I, you missed it earlier. I said he's just talking that shit. Like, he was just, he was on television talking shit. And, like, <laughs> and then he was like, yeah, I said that shit. I said that. I said Fiat currency's going to zero. 
zero. It reminds me of like the like the Tupac Biggie beast where like it just got more and more ridiculous. And so I'm guessing uh, he's going to fire back. He's going to clap back at you. I, I, I literally think somebody should create a uh, a diss track of Charlie Munger Ooh. and then like pay. No. And then listen and then pay to go to lunch. Because I think I know you can pay to go to lunch with Buffett. I'm assuming you can pay to go to lunch with Munger as well for like charity or whatever. And then just literally go to a restaurant and have them play it over the speakers the whole time. Dude, for 25 bucks, 25,000 a song, I'll do a diss track for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, if someone we wants got, to go to lunch with me, I'll, 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 uh, like, like, but literally him saying that fiat currencies are going to go to zero. My favorite part of the whole thing isn't even him saying it, him talking shit, him giving the stare down. It's yeah. the guy who responds and goes, well, that'd be a different environment. Yeah, he, hit, he, hit, <laughs> he hit him with, wow. <laughs> Oh, he was like, God. damn, bro, you really mean that shit? <laughs> <laughs> Guy takes out his phone and starts trading. Yeah, he's like, shit. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think Joe's point about uh, you can't really uh, take these guys, uh, their advice on technology seriously no. is uh, uh, is pretty fair, right? Well, you also have, this happens in finance a lot, right? You, you p- People talk their book a lot in finance. And so you always have to sort of evaluate what folks are saying and the advice they're giving you through the lens of how these people make money. And it's not to say that they're nefarious. You know, a lot of people are actually, you know, you're making money, but you know, you're also trying to help people and and establish their long-term financial health. But there's sometimes there's people who are just trying to do it to make money. And so you have to be able to have that filter and apply that um, going forward. All right. What, what, uh, what's our take on uh, Russia and Ukraine. Does this have any impact on Fed policy decisions or the financial system or any of this stuff? Or is this like more of a, a geopolitical thing and not really finance related? Well, uh, I'll start by saying if if this gets uh, goes awry, it'll be impacting everything. It'll be impacting how you and I live our lives. But the reality is most geopolitical conflicts or exogenous events and markets tend to price those in very quickly and move on. Um, what markets care about our trending rates of, of growth and trending rates of inflation and, and trending direction in monetary and fiscal policy. Um, and so to the extent that the, this Russia skirmish has any impact on that, that's what will impact markets. But it's my view that it won't. Um, it's also my view that this is just a big game for Putin to get the West to the table to get them to back off their uh, sort of eastern expansion with respect to NATO. I think that's pretty clear. I feel like Putin is just sitting there. He's like, he's fools. Like, like uh, he's like, he thinks he's playing like, uh, was it a uh, risk yeah, right, or whatever? Right. Where he's like, all right, I'm gonna move yeah. these people up close to the border. I'm gonna move them back. Nope, they were never there. Like, and and I'm sure there's a whole bunch of nonsense that we don't even know about, totally. right? So it's like hard to underwrite. Like, how serious is it? How much is it propaganda? Whatever. <laughs> like, it just feels like a game. Though. You know what he's doing? He's we've all been there. Like you have an ex-girlfriend. I, I, I haven't put my military troops on the border yet. But. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm bringing it back to, to layman's terms. So how Putin is behaving right now is that like ex-girlfriend who's constantly talking about her new boyfriend on Instagram and constantly taking photos and, and pictures of him just to like make you jealous. So, so like Kim Kardashian. Basically. <laughs> so Putin is behaving like Kim Kardashian right now. And, and uh, ultimately, it's likely to be proven effective because right now, neither the U.S. nor Germany, really the, the broader West, can afford to have a military skirmish uh, develop and obviously out of this because we're already dealing with, you know, sort of a pretty rapid expansion in crude oil prices. And if we take it WTI above $90 a barrel to $100, $110, $120 a barrel, you're that's a recession automatically in the U S economy. Yeah. It, it feels like, 
we're only scratching the surface of the game they could play. Yeah. Like this whole, like, oh, we may invade Ukraine. We may not. What, what was, what were they doing a couple of years ago? There was like uh was it Ukraine or was there another no, uh, sm- small jurisdiction yeah. where like, I remember there's like a CNN reporter and he was like in the snow and they were like, oh, we're like fortifying the position or something, whatever was yeah. going on. And I remember being like, oh damn, that might be real. And then like, <laughs> If you actually think about uh, over the last five years, Trump was in office. We almost went to war with Iran. Like totally. World War Three was popping on Twitter. Totally. And then he was tweeting "Little Rocket Man" at North Korea. <laughs> right? Like, like it feels like this game gets played a lot. It does. But for some reason, I think that the uh, uh, Americans look at this and they're like, "Yo, Putin is a different yeah. thing here." No, like, yeah. you know, what's going on? Did He's, you ever read a uh, Red Notice, the book uh, uh, Bill Browder? No, I have not talked to oh, me about it. Oh, yeah. you got to read it. Uh, it, it. It's not necessarily like a, a educational book, like in you're going to learn about trading or investing or anything like that. Uh, it's more so, um, it's a true story. Mm-hmm. And Bill Browder was an American who uh, in the 80s, I believe, went to Russia. Yep. And uh, he um, found that a lot of the companies were not exactly reporting accurate numbers. Mm. And so it looked like they were much smaller than they actually were. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's unclear, uh, at least from my reading of it, was it for taxation purposes? Was it f- to prevent the government from coming in and confiscating their assets or, mm-hmm. or whatever? But he basically started to buy up stock in the companies. And then it'd be like, yo, they actually did 20 times more revenue than they said they did. <laughs> right? And the stock prices would explode and he would make a killing. Yeah. So kind of like activist investor-esque, but he was just doing it in, you know, uh, Russia. It's actually interesting that the opposite. I read a, there's a book called uh, Red Capitalism about China's financial sector, and it's a be, it's basically the opposite of that, mm-hmm. which is you know they've grossly exaggerated um, their size and might and 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 sophistication of the financial. Sector. This is going back you know ten years ago. I think the book came out in 08 or 09. Obviously, they've taken significant leaps forward um, in developing you know their capability since then. But it was sort of a kind of casting a shed, casting a bit of a doubt on what had become the only growth story in town, you know, really throughout the early 2000s and, and into the early part of the 2010s. Yeah. So what happens with him, which is, uh, uh, I don't know why some people downplay, some people overplay. There's probably a lot of nuance in there mm-hmm. is that he, uh, he ends up becoming wealthier and wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. And at one point he's talking about everyone from Putin to other investors, et cetera. And he's just talking about them like, you know, so like, hey, you got a hedge fund, I got a hedge fund, right? Like, like whatever. Yeah. But then there's like the consolidation of power, all this stuff. And so long story short is uh, he literally gets to the point where he's scared for his safety mm-hmm. and uh, he leaves the country. And at some point, uh, according to his, you know, kind of telling of it, um, the government, the police, whatever, go to his lawyer's office, lawyer's Russian, and they basically confiscate documents. And, wow. you know, illegally, right? In yeah. terms of, uh, uh, they just walk in and they basically beat him up and take it. And they arrest him. <laughs> Jeez. They end up killing his lawyer uh, in the book. Sorry to ruin it for who those who haven't read. Uh, but his lawyer's name was uh, Sergei um, uh, Maniskov, I think is how you say it. I may have it, uh, or Manitsky, I think is actually how you say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people in the United States may have heard of uh, the economic sanction- sanctions, the Manitsky Act. And that's all because Bill Browder went to U.S. politicians and was like, hey, pay attention to this, and did all this work, got John McCain, a bunch of these politicians to actually go ahead and levy these sanctions. But what's crazy about the whole story is he now, still to this day, he writes in the book, like, he goes into a restaurant, he goes in the kitchen and watches them make his food. Wow. 
because he's so scared that whatever. And so red notice is like, uh, kind of like America's top 10 most wanted, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. uh, the Interpol has a red notice, which is like, you're an international fugitive. And so at some point, Russia convinced, uh, Interpol to release a red notice on him. Oh. And then he's able to basically say, well, hold on a second here. Like that's in fast and the furious too. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I, I think that's a true story as yeah. well. It's, it's not to, not to uh, shift gears, but like to me, what you just described is, is one of the reasons I, I, you know, personally tend to be very anti, you know, corporate tax evasion. And, you know, cause you know, it's one thing to run a business and obviously we're all trying to turn profits as business owners. But part of, you know, operating in this wonderful country that we live in is understanding that there's a rule of law and there's, you know, you don't have to worry about the government, you know, beating you up and murdering you and taking documents and things of that nature. You don't have to worry about thugs, you know, doing the same thing. And so ultimately, you know, we're paying for that. We're paying for that with our military. We're paying for that, you know, with our, our judicial system. We're paying for that with everything. And so ultimately, you know, to me, I think when companies try to take their tax burdens to zero, yet they want to sell goods and services to American consumers on American soil, to me, I think that's very unpatriotic. Yeah. The the other piece of this whole thing, it feels like, uh, is there an argument that we ended the war in Afghanistan and like this is, hey, how do we create more economic uh, growth? Yeah. Is like- where can we go to war next? Like how, yeah. how much do you put uh, weight into the like war generates economic activity, economic growth, and therefore we're a country that given, you know, debt to GDP and, and kind of all the, the challenges that we have that we have to constantly be going to war with somebody. Yeah. So I, w- I would look at it from different lines. I, I, th- I generally agree with your sentiment in the sense that there is a underlying motive to constantly be engaged in military conflict. Now, this kind of military conflict, kinetic conflict, tends to be less valuable, certainly at this particular point in the, in the, in the time-space continuum. Right now, our military conflict is, and uh, Dr. Pippa Malmgren is kind of the world authority on a lot of this, so I'm just parroting some of the things she said in recent uh, publications, but you know, the, we're having this big cyber warfare that's kind of going unnoticed um, you know, in mainstream media, and that's where a lot of the sort of development and spending uh, that governments are doing um, with respect to military uh, spending, uh, that's a lot. To, that's where that's going. So I, it, it strikes me that the risk reward for getting into a kinetic skirmish, um, if you think about crude oil going from ninety dollars a barrel to one hundred twenty plus dollars a barrel, to me that's a, a poor trade. A better trade would just to be to dump money into the CIA and and uh, ride around in submarines. So oil, what is it? Forty bucks? U.S. Uh, no, producers no, we're, become we're uh, be, become unprofitable. I think somewhere in that range. Yeah. So I mean, that number is mar- that number changes uh, fluctuates with the price of, of energy yep. prices. And so you know, the last estimates are somewhere between fifty sixty dollars a barrel. Now, uh, as so long as we stay above that at, yeah. at the current, yeah, they're making tons of money. They just okay. don't want to drill. Yep. Yeah. And so when it goes to a hundred hundred twenty dollars, this is the whole argument of like. Uh, what was it, a couple of months ago? The U.S. Uh, was talking about we might have to tap into our strategic reserves yeah. because Russia, Saudi Arabia, a number of other countries around the world were slowing down the pace at which they were uh, uh, producing <laughs> oil, and that seemed to be also a geopolitical game that was going on. Exactly. Yeah. No. Tapping into the strategic petroleum reserves is equivalent of peeing in the ocean. we've all been there i mean it's you're not making a dent (laughs) it just just feels like uh sometimes our solutions like it said you're just like look by the way i'm not an expert right so like i don't know sure like it sounds strategic (laughs) (laughs) right yeah um all right so and then what about uh the situation going on in uh canada 
Like oh, we've that, been talking a bunch about this. What were your thoughts there? Now, so you need to fill me on that. I, I tend not to uh, concern myself with non-market moving events until they move the market. Um, so, so I think that this, <laughs> this is my view on it. The reason why we're so interested in it yeah, is uh, years and years ago, one of the first really big inflection points for Bitcoin was uh, WikiLeaks had came under an absolute shitstorm, mm-hmm. and a lot of financial organizations started to shut down their bank accounts, freeze payments kind of all the financial censorship stuff that we yeah. now know that they, they can do and will do. Yep. And uh, when they did that, WikiLeaks said, hey, well, we'll accept Bitcoin. Yeah. And uh, I believe it's Satoshi. Let me make sure. I don't want to uh, misquote here. Um, but the, uh, the quote that Satoshi had um, was, yeah, so uh, Satoshi at some point um, said, WikiLeaks has kicked the hornet's nest and the swarm is headed towards us. Wow. And I believe that was one of the last things that Satoshi said. And it, and it, from the analysis that people have kind of looked at is it was not just WikiLeaks. It was just like Bitcoin's becoming too popular too quickly. It's not necessarily built for this. We're going to attract a lot of law enforcement and, totally. and nation state, you know, intelligence, et cetera. Uh, this may not be what we want to do. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, we've got to the point that we've gotten to. But that was the first like mainstream, hey, what is Bitcoin? Why is this important? What is this WikiLeaks thing? Whatever. I feel like there's been many between now and uh, between then and now. But this is another massive one where people are oh, like, yeah. wait a second. Whether you agree with the protesters or not, you're telling me that the banks can freeze the payments. You're telling me that the banks can confiscate the uh, crowdfunding uh, platforms can literally confiscate the money like what is going on so so fill me in what's the what's the 22nd like headline so long story short is uh there's a couple of truckers that became a lot of truckers that became literally now the uh uh a 70 kilometer long convoy and they're blocking the major road where most of the trade 70 kilometers drove across canada to ottawa yeah they filled the streets of ottawa with trucks and they're not moving so they basically gridlock the city and then there is a specific, uh, I think it's a bridge uh, yeah. and kind of highway that is a major trade route between Canada and the United States. Yeah, and they're yeah. basically, uh, if not blocking, making it very difficult to get uh, transportation and, yeah. and goods across. And so, of course, there's two different perspectives, right? The most extreme versions are, uh, these are people who are protesting vaccine and mask mandates. They, do, they don't uh, believe that their government should actually come after them. 90% of truckers in Canada reportedly are vaccinated. So it's not a, we don't want to be vaccinated. It's just, you shouldn't tell us and our yeah. fellow citizens. Uh, and so we're going to do something about it. We're going to yeah. basically make you uncomfortable and we're going to you know go in and protest. The government argument is these people are uh, terrorists. And uh, <laughs> the Canadian government has literally come out and said, uh, if you are participating, if your uh, vehicle is used in the protest, we are going to uh, cancel your insurance on your vehicle. We are going to impound the vehicles. Uh, if you try to send more than $25 to these people, we will freeze your account. We will uh, confiscate your phone. Like Wait, what? Bad, nasty, nasty this shit. Is bad. It's yeah. Trudeau's, he's taking an L on this one. Sure. <laughs> There's no yeah. chance he's going to get away and with so this. so, of course, what do they do? Like, <laughs> and people go back in, you know, social media history, and yeah. he said all the right things years before, things like, you know, hey, we shouldn't try to crush dissent. Yeah. Uh, you know, any government that tries to cr- crush dissent loses its moral I you know, stand authority. with Hong Kong's right to protest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 like all, all the things that 
argued yeah. just a week yeah. ago. All yeah. the things that made people believe Canada was a liberal democracy. Totally, yeah. Yep. And yep. now all of a sudden, he is just acting crazy. And so literally, it's gotten to the point where I saw a clip yesterday from, uh, I, I, I think it's called Parliament. Mm-hmm. I, 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 Canadians will correct me immediately if I, I got that wrong. Yep. Um, but the, uh, the Parliament is kind of wild in Canada, where like the two political parties are on either side, and somebody stands up, says something, and there's kind of like a... I don't know what the guy is, but he's like the presider, like kind of like the judge. Yeah. And so he's like, okay, your time's up. Okay. You know, uh, uh, respected, you know, uh, prime minister, go ahead. What do you have to say? <laughs> and yesterday, uh, some woman just took him to town. Like just, she, she was just going after him. Wow. And, uh, you know, her whole side was, uh, was clapping and everything. And he stood up and goes, while the conservatives would like to stand with people with swastikas. Right. And they all start screaming at him. Like, it's like a free for, it's like crazy. This is borderline comedy. If it wasn't so serious. <laughs> so like that's it's like Monty really Python as comedy. Now, <laughs> as uh, people are saying that they also do the yelling and screaming in England as well. Like yeah. only, only in America do we actually just have a bunch of old people who write papers, yeah. right? Like in these other places, they're like, Yo, that no one else reads. I would love to see somebody on. duff out Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Can, you, can you imagine like Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi just yelling at each other on the? They'd be, oh be my wild. god! It'd be national television, right? Totally. So uh, all, the reason why all of that is uh, is interesting to me. Uh, is there's a freedom aspect to it that I think is important. Um, but when we think about it from a business standpoint, we think about it from an investing standpoint, one is uh, you have businesses that have been hurt already, right, by a lot of these mandates here in the United States. We saw tons and tons of businesses because yeah. of government lockdowns, et cetera, that they couldn't make it, uh, et cetera. Then you get the opposite argument, which is no, the vaccines and all this stuff allowed for people to go back to work. They allowed for economies to open or whatever. Okay. But then you got Ottawa where like you want to support people's uh, right to protest, mm-hmm. but like there's some people who can't get to work because literally the, the, the city's locked down. Yeah. Well, right? I think the problem. So like there's a lot of nuance here. That, there's that's a lot more nuance. You're absolutely right. And I think the problem now too is that Canadians and people within the protests are claiming that the bridge is clear. The city is no longer gridlocked. They're protesting in front of parliament, right? Mm. And there's still issues and they're saying, Hey, we should be allowed to do this. Yeah. And then you got the people, you know, they see one guy with a Nazi sign, which is everyone knows that's not cool, but then they get all get labeled. Oh yeah. They're Nazis. You got to well, the it funding. Could be a government like, plant. Yeah, yeah. It, right? could, like, it could be anything is my yeah. point. But, uh, they're saying now the city is much more clear, but they're still having problems. Yeah. yeah. So people are saying you now can uh, move around freely. It's no longer gridlocked. Like, like yeah. you can actually move, uh, which obviously is heading in the right direction where pe- that takes away the argument against totally. the, the protesters. Um, and, and so I think that one of the, uh, the other aspects is Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. People started to say to themselves like, man, I thought Canada was chill. Yeah. Eh? Right. Like, like, yeah. like everyone's just like, okay, these guys are cool people, whatever. Now they're like, well, I saw one tweet that was like, if this happened in Canada, this happened anywhere. Yeah. Totally. And so people start to think about Bitcoin, censorship resistance, like all, it, it just, you start to realize like, oh, this is all more intertwined with business and investing more so than just like, yeah, there's a protest or public health or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The ban on sending them payments is <clears throat> pretty aggressive. That's a big overreach. And that's scary. <laughs> la- la- imagine them labeling people terrorists. That's what they say they're going to do. <laughs> It sounds like, well, look, this, this, this issue here does not have enough sort of stuff in it. There's not enough smoke around this particular issue for us to get there. But you could see where we're going with this, right? I mean, five, six, seven, eight, nine years later, with the next crisis or the next two crises, we're going to, we're going to have governments that take drastic measures like that. And that's not to be alarmist to just being realists. You know, we, we can see the bouncing ball. Yeah. Uh. One of the other data points uh, that recently came out, switching gears a little bit here, is mm-hmm. uh, U.S. citizens— uh, in a self-reported study, 
have now said 24% of U.S. citizens say that they have a crypto account. Mm. Only 23% say that they have a savings account. So more people now say they have crypto than savings. And so I started to dig into, okay, well, how many people say Wait, they have Wait, go back, go back. You said only 23% of, of people self-identified as having a savings account? As in a certificate of deposit. Oh, like gotcha. Your, oh, yeah, your traditional savings. Yes, correct. Not, not, not only not just, hey, do I have savings yeah. at all, but gotcha. actually as having like a traditional savings account. Gotcha. And so- uh, You buffoon to have a savings account. There's no rates. <laughs> <laughs> so I, started, oh, I started to look at it, right? Yeah. And so uh, 25% of Americans uh, say that they have no savings at all for an emergency payment, mm-hmm. right? And then 26% of Americans said they have some emergency uh, payments, but not enough for 90 days. Mm. So basically over 50% of Americans say basically they couldn't make it 90 yeah, days three months to live, you know, yeah. or whatever. Right. Yeah. And so when you have that as the background, like, okay, only 23% saying that they have like a traditional savings account makes a little bit more sense, mm-hmm. but 24% of Americans saying that they have a crypto account yeah. to me, it was like, Oh, this whole, like this digital thing is going to happen. Well, capital chases, it, it, it flows to places where it's treated right, right? Where it gets the highest rate of return, whether that be through the actual interest rate or that they be through, uh, you know, uh, speculation and, and, and rise in market cap. So that to me makes a ton of sense in the context of having, you know, this ridiculous policy out of the Federal Reserve. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think the Fed's going to do in March? Oh, they're definitely going to hike. Uh, the question, obviously, is the 50 basis point hike. It's getting incrementally priced in, and so it's kind of a 50-50 shot. You think 50 is like the over-under? Yeah, well, I guess it'd be 37 and a half, right, um, if you want the over-under. Yeah. I, 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 so I'd, sit out, I'd sit out 50. this bet. You know, And here's why I'd sit out this bet, right? Like the Fed has become – you know, sort of, they keep saying that they're data dependent, but as evidenced by their sort of, you know, still ridiculous, um, ridiculously easy monetary policy. You mean the 0% Fed's, <laughs> yeah. Fed's fund yeah. rate when yeah, we have 7.5%? They're, what they're still see? doing QE right now to this moment. I think they stop at the end of this month. Like they're still buying, expanding their balance sheet right now. Well, just in case. Well, yeah. and I, 40, I read somewhere that uh, the last time we had a 7.5% print, it was like 40 years ago or whatever. It was 40 right? years, the, yeah. the, the rates were at like 10% or higher at that totally. point. We're at zero. Yeah. And so just remove the one in front of the zero and 10 and then you get zero. It's like, it's Mm -hmm. easy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just math guys. Yeah. So, so here, here's why I think that this is probably a different, a difficult bet. And maybe the next bet is probably where investors should be focusing their, their mind share and their capital. This fed has very clearly proven itself to be not data dependent. It's proven itself to be forecast dependent, which Jay Powell has allegedly said many times that he doesn't want to be forecast dependent, but obviously they are, um, as evidenced by their policy relative to inflation. So if you think about their forecast, one, they have inflation returning uh, back towards trend by the, you know, kind of, I guess, effectively the, the early part of next year. But more importantly, the yield curve continues to flatten. And I think the yield curve, uh, just Jay Powell being the market's guy that he is, and Clarida, although he just left, you know, kind of established that legacy in the Fed to really be focused on, at, on markets, the yield curve is telling the Fed and telling all of us investors that the economy is, is going to slow down, and perhaps, perhaps materially so. And so to me, I think the Fed might get spooked by that and say, hey, let's not do too much too fast. Let's just do what the markets want us to do, which is get going on tightening. Let's not try to spook or shock or surprise the markets because we are starting to get signals that you know we're going to be effective at whatever we do in terms of slowing the economy down. Yeah, and so if we get 25 or 50 basis points, like 
at this point, do you think that either one of those surprises people? No, and here's why. Um, so you know, one thing we look at, we track uh, interest rate markets and what they price in, uh, you know, various tenors um, in terms of uh, Fed policy. You know, the markets have not repriced higher in terms of what they think the Fed funds rate is going to get to in this tightening cycle. All that's happened since October, since November, really, is that we've pulled forward more hikes from the future into today. And so if you look at um, one thing we track regularly, our overnight index swap forwards, those are just swap uh, contracts on on the Fed funds rate. And so, you know, where those forwards are pricing, they're starting to invert around 18 to 12, two, 18 months, 18, anywhere between 18 months and two years. The curve is actually inverted, which implies the market expects the Fed to be cutting rates at that moment in time or starting to cut rates at that moment in time. And so you think, OK, where will we be 18 months from now? You know, middle of next year, um, sometime mid, mid to late next year. That's effectively saying the Fed is responding to a recession, right? Why would the Fed be cutting rates? You know, and that, that that's our central thesis is that if the market is already starting to see a recession in the second half of 2023, I think it's more likely that it, it, it starts to arrive in the first half of 2023. So this is my general thought process. I, I'm not nearly as well versed as you are in terms of when exactly will happen or some of the intricate kind of nuance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my general sense is uh, they are going to wait as long as they can, which yeah, yeah probably is March, to start to raise interest rates. They'll start doing some of the tapering, et cetera. The response is going to shock them, and they're going to return back to 0% interest rate environment pretty quickly and be like, oh, shit, we have an economy that literally is dependent on us at this point. Uh, and if we don't do this stuff, then we're screwed. Yeah, that's a great call. I mean, that, this is this is so. This is what happens in, in hedge fund meetings. I've uh, been to several thousand of them throughout my career. We have these debates and discussions about the second and third order effects of those things. So, what you just said is, say, if the Fed pivots dovishly in early in this process as a response to you know asset markets going down and things like that, is that positive for bonds or bearish for bonds? I would argue that's probably bearish for bonds. I don't buy bonds, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I can tell you Bitcoin's going to the, I can tell you Bitcoin's going to the fucking moon. <laughs> that might be the best quote ever. I don't buy bonds, so I don't know. Yeah, well, I, I literally don't know. I mean, what do you think? No, so 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 bonds usually go up in price, down in yield when the Fed is being dovish yep. uh, or, or sort of the Fed is reacting dovishly to something bad that happened, right? And then once they do the dovish thing, the bond so go, going down in price and up in yield. And so my assumption would be that, you know, a dovish pivot out of the Fed would actually fan the fames of this sort of inflation uh, fear that we have in the economy, right? We're right at these critical thresholds, whether you look at long-term inflation expectations in the market, you know, like forward inflation swap rates, or if you look at long-term inflation expectations based on consumer confidence measures and things like that, you know, we're kind of right at the threshold where we can call this a cyclical a very elevated but cyclical sort of impulse in inflation. If we start to go higher from there in terms of both of those metrics, this is no longer a cyclical impulse in inflation. This is a unhinging of inflation expectations that could really start to feed on itself. So the Fed will be playing a very dangerous game if they think that's on a part of the playbook. Is there a world where uh, 2% isn't the target anymore? Like we reset to 3 or 4 or 5% inflation? 5% seems to be extreme, but like could you see a world where their actual stated goal moves higher in an attempt to uh, kind of um, uh, reset expectations in the market of like, hey, now the new normal is we're going to live with three and a half percent inflation, not 2%. Yes. And yes, and it will. Um, and it's oh, you not think be- that will happen. Yeah. Well, so we built a, a large dynamic factor model that tracks all the different variables in the economy that really influence inflation. 
Um, and that model um, is to spit out the stationary mean, you know, on an out of sample basis that said, hey, look, inflation should have been around, you know, just shy of 2% on average in the 2010s decade. Well, guess what that average was? It was around 1.8, it was 1.8%. Um, that model is now saying that that stationary mean should be somewhere between 2.4 and 3%. So let's just take the upper boundary of that, of that range. You know, 3% is not quite a doubling of where we've been in the last decade, but it's pretty big, big shift higher. So based on everything that's developed, where you look at the changes in automation, so this model is, is, is measuring change in, in some of these variables. Um, we look at change in automation, change in the ba Fed balance sheet, change in money supply, all this stuff. There's 16 different factors uh, in the model, and we publish this monthly so anybody can just go to our research and find it out. If that stuff comes to fruition, if that model is anywhere in the area code of accurate, the Fed won't have a choice. Inflation will be higher. And so they're going to have to say, hey, look, we're going to revise up our inflation target because guess what? They won't be able to do anything about it without, yeah. you know, crashing the economy. Yeah. It, it just feels like there's a couple of um, there's a couple of big inflection points of things that they're going to have to do at some point, whether it's six months from now or six years from now, uh, that folks who understand some of the nuance and intricacies are like, oh, shit, they're going to have to do that. Uh, the Bitcoin community is like, that's going to be a validation. Like, yep, we told you. Oh yeah. Uh, but even though people see that coming, like the day they're like, okay, we are officially going to move our inflation target from 2% to 3%. I feel like people go fucking crazy on the internet. Yeah. Right? No, people it, are like, yo, what? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. 50%? Like, what, do you, what do you guys think the impact of that is? Well, like it, it, it starts with what causes them to do that? Is it a depression or is it an inflationary episode? Right. Is it them capitulating and saying, look, man, we can't keep inflation under control? Or is it them saying, you know, it could be something like where we're headed today, which is we only did a little bit of tightening, but we wind up in recession anyway. And so the reality is they might actually have to, to in order to allow the economy to grow in this particular decade where there will be more inflation, they almost have to allow their inflation mandate to be higher because if they keep act, reacting to it uh, to a lower mandate, they're going to be tightening sooner and faster and more than the economy can allow at various intervals. Yeah. So, uh, somebody is saying, I, I don't know if this is true or not. You might know. Uh, the stated goal already changed. The Fed said 2% average. Oh, yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm saying beyond that. Yeah. yeah. Like like saying it, right now, it went from two to or cap of two to an average around two. I'm saying it could go to an average around three. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's what I'm talking yeah. about as well. Uh, but I think that what the idea of a cap of two to an average of two, uh, there's a lot of methodological. Uh, oh. uh, well, they could uh, also just keep changing the CPI calculation, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the, ex exactly. Yeah. They're just going to keep messing with all the numbers and, and doing all this stuff. And so I keep coming back to like, somebody asked me uh, recently, said, what do, what do I actually think inflation is? And I said, well, look, there's a whole bunch of different ways you could look at calculating. You could look at it just simply, if you look at the price of a good over time, that, you know, call it 1980s methodology of CPI uh, mm -hmm. calculation, we'll put it at, you know, low teens, yeah. right? Yeah. If you look at it uh, compared to asset prices, stocks are up 30% last year, Bitcoin's totally. up 65, real estate's up 20 something percent, right? Yeah. So, so you get some bigger numbers. Uh, but regardless of how you look at it, I think everyone's like, it's not seven and a half. I think that's pretty widely accepted. Yeah. In a world where, inflation expectations come back down. So let's say sub 5%, I don't know, two, three, four, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. If asset prices continue to go up at an incredible rate, I actually wonder if the market just starts to say, look, like who cares about what your inflation number is? The only number I care about is the asset uh, price inflation. Yeah. Because that's ultimately going to be what affects my portfolio. But also it's the clearest signal that I have against 
your manipulated data that continues to change. Like I have no ability to continue to calculate percent changes because underlying the baskets changing, the goods are changing, the methodology is changing. And so like, well, just how much does the house cost today? How much does it go next year and the next year? And like, that's now my inflation measurement, whether it's better or not. It just gives me uh, confidence totally that I can use that. And this is why we focus on rate of change in our research. Rate of change is statistical fact. It's not methodological driven. It doesn't, you know, it's not going to be influenced by whether or not the Fed is or the government of BLS is making, you know, <laughs> cosmetic changes to the methodology at any given interval, right? Like a, a, a positive impulse or, you know, one or two standard deviation impulse relative to the trend is a fact. That's a mathematical fact. And this is so this is why, again, our research anchors on that. Because again, we don't want to get into too many of these debates because I think you're going to miss out on a lot of alpha and beta along the way. It's not to say that these debates aren't good. I just think, you know, at various times where, you know, it, like I think today is a great example. We're, in our opinion, we're nearing the peak of the inflation sign curve. Now, I don't think 7.5 is the right number. It's probably 15. But we're peaking at 15 and heading back down to some low, low to number else. that's lower than 15. And so to me, what I care about is the 15 to 10 or the 7.5 in realized terms to four. You know, that's all that matters. All right. We got time for one more thing. And then uh, we've got David Mercer who's going to join. Uh, election season Ooh. is on the horizon. Oh, it's already here probably. Uh, yeah. How much of the Fed is independent is true? And how much of, oh, shit, we got to get inflation down. We got to get, you know, kind of everything under control going into the election as being politically driven versus uh, monetary policy uh, needs? Well, uh, there's two answers to that question, right? So the first answer is, are they officially or even unofficially being politically motivated? Probably not, right? I mean, there are, you know, for the most part, they don't have any real recourse for anybody to punish them if they don't do what they want, right? We saw this with Trump and, 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 and Powell um, in 2018, 2019. You mean when the president was tweeting, tweeting about our currency? Yeah, <laughs> tweeting he's an idiot and all that stuff, yeah. Um, but, and, but I do believe these are human beings, and they have their own political biases and they have their own theories on how the world works and how business should be operating and how the economy should be supporting that uh, through policy. And so, you know, you think about a guy like Powell who's probably leans Republican, probably leans a little more free markets, you know, versus someone like a Yellen who probably leans a little bit more Democrat, a little bit more hands-on as it relates to, um, you know, affecting economic outcomes. And so I think you have to understand that these are all humans and it's less about the political pressure that they're getting from the White House or D.C. It's just really more about their, their belief system. Yeah, it's interesting because I do wonder, would it be better off with, let's say, Powell's position, right, as the chairman, being an elected position or an appointed position? And the appointed position, I think the reason being that, like, do we really want our central bankers, like, you know, campaigning, right? Yeah. Like, that'd be kind of weird. Yeah. At the same time, to your point, who holds them accountable? Like, if we have high inflation for two more years, who fires them? Like, I guess the president could fire them mid-term, like right, and replace them and, and uh, bring somebody else in, but that would be highly irregular and, and might cause more fear than, you know, not. So, like, it's almost like it's an unaccountable position other than every couple of years, and you're only accountable to the president. Really. This goes back to everything I keep saying about the Fed. It's preposterous that people sit around a room and determine the price and quantity of money. We have the ability, either through blockchain or other you know traditional technologies, 
to vote this in or to, you know, to do a better solution than just having a bunch of elected or unelected officials determine that. So to me, I think there's a better solution regardless. What do you think? I agree. I, I think we're going to look back in decades from now and laugh. And laugh out that, loud. Yeah, yeah that La- people were sitting in a room. There was and- a guy getting ran at a press conference <laughs> talking about the price and quantity of yeah. money that he was going to infect. Like, that's yeah. preposterous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <sighs> if you remember that they were day trading at the same time. <laughs> oh, Christ. <Yeah. laughs> no comment. I, Next question. <laughs> I, 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 I still just don't understand how uh, that wasn't a bigger story. Yeah. Well, you like, know, the, the, the Fed, it's a three-letter organization. Yeah. Yeah, again, another scam. <laughs> we, we talked earlier about the IOC, uh-huh. uh, the uh, International Olympic, Olympic Committee, Committee. Yeah. and uh, they they basically screwed over this young snowboarder. Uh, she had a Prada snowboard, and it was cool for uh, for one uh, competition, and they made her cover it up, like color over it, huh. but it's the bottom of the board, and so she ended up, something went wrong, she got hurt. Oh. And she was like, well, yeah, you guys made me put something on the bottom of my board. Yeah. Right. Or whatever. And they were like, well, that's not like a, uh, uh, that, that's like not a real brand that does sports sponsors. They claim they're not predominantly a sporting goods company. That's, She's like, well, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> right? like, yeah, I would do My school would probably Gucci or something, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well the, the, the real counterpoint was that they, hmm. they allowed a Russian athlete who tested positive for banned substance to continue to compete. And everyone was like, well, that's kind of two different issues that should be my favorite was Shikari Richardson. She, she tweeted, she was like, can someone please explain to me what this is, what's going on here? I was like, damn, I respect the hell out of that lady. So I was like, all I did was get high. She's making her heart get more blood. It's a double entendre troll. Yeah, just like, can someone please explain this to me? Oh man, that's good. So, all right. Before we let you go uh what, what's uh what's your thoughts on miami so far oh love it man it's expensive as all hell down here but i assume <laughs> that's just a function of the inflation that we're all dealing with uh, I, I, I do think that miami was just named uh the most expensive let me pull it up uh miami just overtook new york and la uh and the bay area as the nation's most unaffordable housing market it makes a ton of sense i got a bunch of buddies down here who's saying their uh, landlords are pushing through rental increases off schedule, like not not when the lease is up. Have yeah. you even heard of that? Oh wow! Down here, I, I haven't heard about yeah. that. Another like yeah, yeah, basically like threatening like, hey, when your lease is up, if you don't take this increase now, we're not going to renew you. You know, like yeah. basically you. Oh, yeah. oh so like midway yeah. through the lease, midway through yeah. the lease. Yeah, like I've I haven't even heard of that. So I mean, clearly there's a there's damn Miami landlords are gangsters. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look around, man. Like it's just it's this just telecommuting thing. If if it sticks, and I think it's going to stick. Like, why in the hell would you live in New York? Yeah. Why in the hell would you live in San? There's good parts of San Francisco, but you know there's obviously not great parts as well. Like, there's going to be a great mass migration that is not just you know a pandemic thing. It's going to last for years and potentially a generation. Uh, myself and multiple friends I talked about on here before, they saw 20, 25% increases in, uh, in rent I, when the leases came up. When the leases came so up, I'm yeah. sure a lot of landlords like, damn, I ain't waiting six months to do that. Yeah, totally. Right? Totally. I'm, I'm going to do that. The other thing, ah, real quick, hold <laughs> Sounds on. like I should start, you know, hitting up my landlord. I do it, man. Getting like a, a tray of pastries every morning. Like. <laughs> so, uh, mark his birthday on the calendar. <laughs> <laughs> so here's one, one more thing very quickly is, uh, a friend um, in New York sent me uh, their energy bill, mm. their electricity bill. And uh, previously, it was $54, 55 bucks, right? The last one was $243. Come on. And so you use more energy in uh, in, in the winter, obviously. In January, right? yeah, in December, January. yeah, of course. Uh, 
And so forget about how much. Actually, you actually use it the most in the summertime for yeah, AC. Yeah, I was going to say so for AC. Summertime, yeah. So they used to pay 6.68 cents per kilowatt hour. So six, six and a half cents, give or take. Mm-hmm. Now they're paying 19. Holy it's a shit. tripling. God, yeah. Come on. Come so on. like when stuff like that goes on, by the way, like that's not just a New York thing that's going to happen across the country in a lot of areas, whatever. <laughs> but like when stuff like that is happening, people also say like, hey, where else can I go so that I can? I say recession and crash on a near daily basis now. And I didn't have the confidence to say that maybe three or four weeks ago. But everything I've heard in the last three or four weeks in terms of data, consumer confidence metrics, statistics like that, you know, like tripling of people's, you know, um, you know, you know, utilities and all this stuff. Like, man, like this is how you squeeze the hell out of the U.S. consumer. And there's a lot of people out there hurting, you know, wages are up a lot, but they're still not keeping pace with inflation. And so people's standard of living is going down and their ability and, and or willingness to take on discretionary consumption is, is likely to continue to wane as we go throughout this year. So a lot of economists are going to be very disappointed with some very aggressive growth expectations this year if this keeps up. I could not agree more. Absolutely. I appreciate you. Where can we send people to uh, to find you on the internet or find 42 Macro? Absolutely. So 42macro.com, come check us out. We do uh, we publish some world-class research for everybody. The come best check out. research. Uh, the I best business that. show, the best research. Thank you. The best research. Um, and I'm on Twitter at 42 macro Dale. so come holler at me. 42macro.com. Yep. For all of you, uh, you you people who are lazy in the chat, like me, <laughs> I just put the link in the chat. You can just go click the link, and then you're uh, you're and check out the uh, sample reports too to see if this for you. It's not for everybody, but uh, you know the work the work we produce is is really good for the people who like it. And then uh, if it's not for you, that's all good. Darius is forever a goat showing up in the sofa shirt. John's so mad he's not here. <laughs> I know. I know. It's all right. He's uh, he's traveling. He's traveling. Oh, good for him. Life. All right. Thank you so much for yeah. coming today. Catch you guys Thanks. next week, man. I appreciate, good. We'll see appreciate you next you, Thursday. Man. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to try to transition to get a new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to pompscryptocourse.com. We've developed a curriculum with the top teams across the industry. It's a three-week intensive training program with over 50 events packed into that three-week time period. Go to pompscryptocourse.com to learn more and I'll meet you guys for the next episode.